Chapter 8 of Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark DeSanzo. Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy by Ruth Putnam. Chapter 8 The New Duke, 1467 the good duke's journey to bouvinia where he witnessed the manner in which his authority was vindicated was his last effort in the early summer following on friday june tenth philip then at bruges was taken ill and died on the following monday june thirteenth between nine and ten in the evening charles was summoned on the sunday and it seemed as though his horse's hoofs hardly struck the pavement as he rode so swift was his course on the way to bruges when he reached the house where his father lay dying he was told that speech had already ceased but that there was still life the count threw himself on his knees by the bedside weeping in all tenderness and implored a paternal benediction and pardon for all wherein he had offended his father near the duke stood his confessor who begged the dying man to make a sign if he could still understand what was said to him on this admonition and in reply to his son's prayers philip turned his eyes to charles looked at him and pressed the hand which was laid upon his own but further token was beyond his strength the count stayed by his side until he breathed his last thus ended the life of a man who had been a striking figure in europe for forty years his most fervent dream indeed had never been fulfilled all his pompous vows to wrest the holy land from the invading turks had proved vain many years had passed since he had had military success of any kind and even in his earlier life his successes had been owing to diplomacy and to a happy conjunction of circumstances rather than to skilful generalship he possessed preeminently the power of personality when duke john of burgundy fell on the bridge at montreux and philip came into his heritage henry v of england was in the full flush of his prosperity standing triumphant over england and france and in a position to make good his claim with three stalwart brothers to back him all these young men had died prematurely their only descendant was henry the sixth and that meagre and wretched representative of the ambitious henry v had had no spark of the character of his father and uncles the one vigorous element in his life was his wife margaret of anjou who diligently exerted herself to keep her husband on his throne in vain were her efforts by fourteen sixty seven edward of york was on that throne gone too was charles the seventh whose father's axe had clouded his early whose son darkened his latter years out of his group of contemporaries duke philip alone had marched steadily to every desired goal his epitaph gave a fairly accurate list of his achievements in doggerel verses john was born of philip child of good king john to that john i philip was born his eldest son flanders artois and burgundy his will bequeathed to me therein to follow him and rule them legally with holland zealand ano my own realm greater grew luxembourg brabant namur soon were added too the liegeois and the german my lawful rights defied by force of right and arms they have been pacified at one single time against me were maintained french english german forces nothing have they gained against king charles the seventh i warred in great array from me he begged a peace and king was from that day 
the mighty conflicts that I fought in all are numbered seven. Not once was I defeated, to God the praise be given. Time and time again Liège and Ghent revolted, but I put them down, I would not be insulted. In Berrois and Lorraine, King René warred upon me. Of Sicily erst king, captivity soon won he. Louis, son of Charles, depressed and refugee, from me received his crown, five years my guest was he. Edward, Duke of York, fled, wretched, to my land, that now he's England's king, is due my aid and hand. To defend the church, which is the house divine, the golden fleece was founded, that great order mine. Christian faith to succor, in vigor and in strength, my galleys sailed the sea in all its dreary length. In later days I planned, and most sincerely meant, to take the field myself, but death did that prevent. When Eugene the Pope, by the council, was disdained, through my control alone, as Pope was he retained. In 1467, time my goal has set. When I am seventy-one, I pay Dame Nature's debt. With father and grandfather I now lie buried here, as in life I ever was their equal and their peer. Good Jesu was my guide in every word and deed. Beseech him, every one, that heaven be my mead. The territories thus named, that passed to the new duke, covered a goodly space of earth. Had Philip not slacked his ambition at a critical time, undoubtedly he could have left a royal rather than a ducal crown to his son. He did not so will it, and, moreover, in a way he had receded from his independence as he had accepted feudal obligations towards Louis the Eleventh, which he never had towards Charles the Seventh. Lured by the hope of becoming prime adviser of the French king, he had emphasized his position as first peer of France. Thus it was as Duke of Burgundy par excellence that Philip died, as the typical peer whose luxury and magnificence far surpassed the state possible to his acknowledged liege. To his son was bequeathed the task of attempting to turn that ducal state into state royal, and of establishing a realm which should hold the balance of power between France and Germany. There was no doubt in Charles's mind as to which was the greater, the cleverer, the more powerful of the two, Louis the King and Charles the Duke. Had not the former been a beggarly suppliant at his father's gates as Dauphin? As King, had he not been forced to yield at the gates of his own capital to every demand made by Charles, standing as the conscientious representative of the public welfare of France? Had not Louis befriended the contumelious neighbor of Charles, only to learn that his Burgundian cousin could and would deal summarily with all protests against his authority among the lesser folk on Netherland territory? The Croix made an attempt to gain the new duke's friendship, as appears from this letter to Duke Charles. Our very excellent Lord, we have heard that it has pleased our Lord to take to himself and to withdraw from the world the good Duke Philip, our beloved Lord and Father, Prince of Glorious Memory, August Duke, Most Christian Champion of the Faith, Patron and Pattern of the Virtues and Honors of Christianity, and the Dread of Infidel Lands. By his valorous deeds he is won an immortal name among living men, and deserves to our mind to find grace before the merciful bounty of God, whom we implore to pardon his faults. Alas, our most doughty seigneur! thus dolorous death shows what is to be expected by all mortals how many lands how many nobles how many peoples 
how many treasures and how many powers would have been ready to prevent what has come to pass and how many prayers would have risen to god could he have prevented this death death is inevitable and the death of the good is the end of all evils and the beginning of all benefits but still your loss and ours cannot pass without affliction nevertheless our most puissant lord when we consider that we are not left orphans and that you his only son remain to fill his place this is a cause for comfort we implore you to be pleased to count us your loyal subjects and very humble servitors and to permit us to go to you to thus declare ourselves etc a de quoi j de quoi at the time of the duke's death olivier de la marche was in england whither he had accompanied the bastard of burgundy on a mission to king edward right royally had the latter received the embassy Quote, clad in purple the garter on his leg and a great baton in his hand he seemed indeed a personage worthy of being king for he was a fine prince with a grand manner a count held the sword in front of him and around his throne were from twenty to twenty-five old counsellors white-haired and looking like senators gathered together to advise their master thus appeared edward on the occasion of attorney given in honour of the embassy which lamarche proceeds to describe in detail the bastard of burgundy wearing the burgundian coat of arms with a bar sinister made a fine record for himself after the tournament he invited the ladies to a sunday dinner Quote, especially the queen and her sisters and made great preparations therefore and then we departed thomas de la Rey, bailiff of co and i go to brittany to accomplish our embassy we arrived at plume and were obliged to wait wind and boats to go into brittany while there came the news that the duke of burgundy was dead you may believe how great was the bastard's mourning when he heard of his father's death and how the nobility who were with him mourned too their pleasures were melted into tears and lamentations for he died like a prince in all valour in his life he accomplished two things to the full one was he died as the richest prince of his time for he left four hundred thousand crowns of gold cash seventy two thousand marks of silver plate without counting rich tapestries rings gold dishes garnished with precious stones a large and well-equipped library and rich furniture for the second he died as the most liberal duke of his time he married his nieces at his own expense he bore the whole cost of great wars several times at his own expense he refitted the church and chapel at jerusalem he gave ten thousand crowns to build the tower of burgundy at rhodes no one went from him who was not well recompensed the state he maintained was almost royal for five years he supported monseigneur the dauphin and was a prince so renowned that all the world spoke well of him the bastard of burgundy took leave of the english court and hastened to bruges to join his brother the count of charolais who received him warmly quote, henceforth explains olivier when i mention the said count i will call him the duke of burgundy as is reasonable solemnly was the prince's body carried into the church of saint denis in bruges there to repose until it could be taken to burgundy to be buried at dijon with his ancestors lamarche dismisses the funeral with a brief phrase as he was not himself present at bruges being busied in brittany there was a memorial service there the finest he ever saw the arms of burgundy were inserted in the chapel decorations not merely pinned on a fact that impressed the chronicler no nobles not even those from flanders were permitted to put on mourning 
the duke of brittany declared that none but him was worthy of the honor for so high a prince Quote, so he alone wore mourning at the end of the service i went to thank him for the reverence he had shown the house of burgundy and he responded that he had only done his duty then i finished my business as quickly as i could and crossed the sea again and returned to my new master in his treatise on the eminent deeds of the duke of burgundy chastelin recounts more at length than lamarche all that his great master had accomplished then he proceeds to describe the duke as he knew him quote, he was medium in height rather slight but straight as a rush strong in hip and in arm his figure well knit his neck was admirably proportioned to his body his hand and foot were slender he had more bone than flesh but his veins were full-blooded like all his ancestors his face was long as was his nose his forehead high his complexion was brunette his hair brownish soft and straight his beard and eyebrows the same color but the former curly the latter were bushy and inclined to stand up like horns when he was angry his mouth was well proportioned his lips full and high colored his eyes were gray sometimes arrogant but usually amiable in expression his personality corresponded perfectly to his appearance his countenance showed his character and his character was a witness to the truth of his physiognomy nothing was contradictory perfect was the harmony between the inner and the outer man between the nobility of thought and the simple dignity well poised and graceful among the great ones of this earth he was like a star in heaven every line proclaimed i am a prince and a man unique it was for his bearing rather than his beauty that he commanded universal admiration in a stable he would have looked like an image in a temple in a hall he was the decoration wherever his body was there too was his spirit ready for the demands of the hour he was singularly joyous and nicely tempered in speech with so much personal magnetism that he could mollify any enemy if he could only meet him face to face his dress was always rich and appropriate he was skilful in horsemanship in archery and in tennis but his chief amusement was the chase he liked to linger at the table and demanded good serving but was really moderate in his tastes as often he neglected pheasant for a bit of mayence ham or salted beef oaths and abuse were never heard from him to all alike his speech was courteous even when there was nothing to be gained never i assert did falsehood pass his lips his mouth was equal to his seal and his spoken word to his written loyal as fine gold and whole as an egg chastelin repeats himself somewhat in the profusion of his eulogy but such are the main points of his characterization then he proceeds to some qualifications quote, in order to avoid the charge of flattery i acknowledge that he had faults none is perfect except god often he was very careless in administration and he neglected questions of justice of finance and of commerce in a way that may redound to the injury of his house the excuse urged is that it was his deputies who were at fault the answer to that is that he trusted too much to deputies and should not be excused for his confidence a ruler ought to understand his business himself also he had the vices of the flesh he pleased his heart at the desire of his eyes at the desire of his heart he multiplied his pleasures his wishes were easy to attain what he wanted was offered freely he neglected the virtuous and holy lady his wife a christian saint chaste and charitable for this i offer no excuse to god i leave the cause another fault was that he was not wise in his treatment of his nobles 
especially in his old age he often preferred the less worthy the less capable advisers the answer to this charge is that as his health failed whoever was by his side obtained ascendancy over him and succeeded in keeping the others at a distance ergo theirs is the malice and the excuse is to the princely invalid in his solitude even valets used their power as is not wonderful he went late to mass and often out of hours sometimes he had it celebrated at two o'clock or even three and in so doing he exceeded all christian observance for this there is no excuse that i dare allege i leave it to the judgment of god he had indeed obtained dispensation from the pope for causes which he explained and he only is responsible god alone can judge about him it would be a dreadful shame if his soul suffered for this neglect in lifetime earth would not suffice to deplore nor the nature of man to lament the perdition of such a soul and of such a prince hell is not worthy of him nor good enough to lodge him o god who rescued trajan from hades for a single virtuous act do not suffer this man to descend therein having thus tried his best to give a vivid description of the father's personality while acknowledging that he is not sure of the fate of his soul the chronicler decides that it would be an excellent moment to paint the sun too for all time in view of his mortality quote, i will use the past tense so that my words may be good for always end quote. duke charles was shorter and stouter than duke philip but well formed strong in arm and thigh his shoulders were rather thick-set and a trifle stooping but his body was well adapted to activity the contour of his face was rounder than that of his father his complexion brunette his eyes were black and laughing angelically clear when he was sunk in thought it seemed as though his father looked out of them like his father's mouth was his full and red his nose was pronounced his beard brown and his hair black his forehead was fine his neck white and well set though always bent as he walked he certainly was not as straight as philip but nevertheless he was a fine prince with a fair outer man when he began to speak he often found difficulty in expressing himself but once started his speech became fluent even eloquent his voice was fine and clear but he could not sing although he had studied the technique and was fond of music in conversation he was more logical than his father but very tenacious of his own opinion and vehement in its expression although at the bottom he was just to all men in counsel he was keen subtle and ready he listened to others arguments judicially and gave them due weight before his own concluded the discussion he was attentive to his own business to a fault for he was rather more industrious than became a prince economical of his own time he demanded conscience of his subordinates and worked them very hard he was fond of his servants and fairly affable though occasionally sharp in his words his memory was long and his anger dangerous as a rule good sense swayed him but being naturally impetuous there was often a struggle between impulse and reason he was a god-fearing prince was devoted to the virgin mary rigid in his fasts lavish in charity he was determined to avoid death and to hold on to his own tooth and nail and was his father's peer in valor like his father he dressed richly unlike him he cared more for silver than for jewels he lived more chastely than is usual to princes and was always master of himself he drank little wine though he liked it because he found that it engendered fever in him his only beverage was water just colored with wine he was inclined to no indulgence or wantonness Quote, 
at the hour in which i write his tastes for hard labor is excessive but in other respects his good sense has dominated him at least thus far it is to be hoped that as his reign grows older he will curb his overstrenuous industry as to the duke's sympathies chastelain regrets that circumstances have turned him towards england naturally he belonged to the french and it was a pity that the machinations of the king quote, whose crooked ways are well known to god have forced him into self-defence yet on his forehead he wears the fleur-de-lis chastelain acknowledges that charles is accused of avarice but defends him on the ground that he has been driven into collecting a large army Quote, a penny in the chest is worth three in the purse of another to take precautions in advance is a way to save honor and property end quote, prudently adds the historian who evidently flourishes his maxims to strengthen his own appreciation of the duke's economy which quite as evidently is not pleasing to him quote, i have seen him the very opposite of miserly open-handed and liberal rejoicing in largesse when he came into his seigneury his nature did not change end quote it was simply the exigencies of his critical position that forced him to restrain his natural propensities and thus to gain the undeserved reputation for parsimony it was also said that he was a very hard taskmaster but as a matter of fact he demanded nothing of his soldiers that he was not ready to undertake himself like a true duke he was his own commander drew up his own troops himself in battle array and then passed from one end of the line to the other encouraging the men individually with cheery words promising them glory and profit and pledging himself to share their dangers in victory he was restrained and showed more mercy than cruelty after expatiating on the points where charles was like his father conventional princely qualities chastelain adds quote, in some respects they differed the one was cold and the other boiling with ardor the one slow and prone to delay the other strenuous in his promptness the elder negligent of his own concerns the younger diligent and alert they differed in the amount of time consumed at meals and in the number of guests whom they entertained they differed more or less in their voluptuousness and in their expenditures and in the way in which they took solace and amusement but in all other respects quote, in life they marched side by side as equals and if it please god he will be their conductor in glory everlasting is the final assurance of their eulogist yet lavish as the burgundian poet is in his adjectives about his patron there is considerable discrimination between his summaries of the two dukes it is very evident that from his accession charles was less of a favorite than his father while endeavoring to be as complimentary as possible distrust of his capacities creeps out between the lines chastelain died in fourteen seventy five and thus never saw charles final disaster but the violence of his character had inspired lack of confidence in his power of achievement a violence that made people dislike him as philip with all his faults was never disliked End of chapter eight